Hey there, I'm Stephanie Domet. I'm an editor at Mindful Magazine, and I'm a writer for Mindful.org. Hi, I'm Barry Boyce, editor-in-chief of Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org, and author of the regular column, Point of View. And this is the Point of View podcast. So as usual, Barry and I are in his office here at Mindful. You might hear some street sounds, some birds doing their thing. You will for sure hear squeaky chair. (laughs) Our unofficial co-host, there he is now. And we're all here to talk about, well, to talk about feelings. It's going to be great. Barry, I'm so glad you chose to write about emotions for the October issue. Um, As a fiction writer, I feel obsessed with feelings and how we react to them or act on them, our own feelings and the feelings of others. And what made you want to write about emotions this time out? When you said feelings, I heard um, that old song in my head. Feelings, feelings. You remember that? Whoa, 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 feelings. That one? Exactly. Uh It's the cliche, cheesy song. It's the ultimate cheesy song, right? It's the go-to. Well, feelings is a a go-to for mindful. When we did our Getting Started series in 2014, it was very important to us that very early on we uh, addressed working with emotions. Mm. You know, we've always felt it's really important to let people know that emotions are a key area of investigation for mindfulness. It's not just about attaining some uh, never-changing kind of way of uh, behaving and thinking and acting. Mindfulness um, turns its lens to the full range of emotion that we have. So um, I've been meaning to do this uh, point of view for quite a while um, because it's it's just so important. Because we can't expect to stay in that space of equanimity. Things happen and we feel something about them. Well, I think, no, I think, in fact, equanimity encompasses emotion. Equanimity is about remaining steadfast, you might say, in the face of ups and downs. But one might be mistaken in thinking that that means when something bad happens that you don't have a negative emotional reaction. So equanimity is the backdrop, but in the foreground could be the emotion. So I guess a better way to think of it would be we can't expect to remain neutral. Exactly. In fact, it's not a goal. Right. It's not a goal to have this kind of uh, neutral, faux, peaceful kind of demeanor all the time. It's, um, that's a fake kind of mindfulness, because it's not human. You're tr- trying to have um, one kind of response to what's going on in the world, and that's not human. Right. You write about uh, being rational and being emotional. Uh, And it seems to me that culturally we're kind of obsessed with that. And I wonder what you make of that obsession with being rational instead of emotional 
And then I'll tag on a secondary question while we're at it. Are those two even opposites, rational and emotional? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, You know, as I was um, exploring this topic, I started looking back into the history of how emotion has been treated and discussed, particularly in the West, you know, going back to uh, ancient times in the West. And um, you do seem to find a, a consistent almost denigration of emotion and a celebration of rationality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think of the historically, when people uphold the great thinkers of the West, they're holding up thinkers, for one thing, and it's Aristotle. Rather than feelers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's Aristotle and and Plato, and uh, it seems to be all about how you think things through. Uh-huh. And in life, we feel things through as much as we think things through. So this... Um, it creates a sort of false juxtaposition between the cool, calm, rational mind and the upset, unstable, mercurial, uh, emotional mind that's lesser. And um, I think that's problematic. Yeah, that feels to me like a dichotomy that's been used to keep women in particular out of certain arenas, this idea that rational is better than emotional. Um, you know, it's something that's always raised around women who try to get into politics or women in business. What's at stake for us socially, culturally, or even personally, when we decide that emotions are the province of, of one group and, and not another, in this case, perhaps women and not men? Yes, well, there's been quite a lot lately in the press um, surrounding the the Serena Williams yeah. incident from the U.S. Open, where she got really mad and and um, you know it's occasioned a great commercial that that um, shows the absurdity of denigrating women for showing emotion for having emotion. Uh, clearly men show emotion all the time and they're often celebrated for it. For their passion. Uh, For their passion in sports. You see that all the time. And um, so, you know, it does a great disservice to emotion altogether to, uh, to genderize it and to rank it um, as often people are frankly doing, as far as I'm concerned, when they take a very simplistic approach to neuroscience discussions around emotion, they pit the so-called executive function at the front of the brain with the emotions in the amygdala, in the heart of the brain, and it's like these two are fighting against each other. And even the term executive function um, is a kind of a 50s, uh, you know, coat and tie, button down, uh, top down 
kind of way of looking at things. There is no executive in your brain <laughs> sitting at a desk. I picture him with his little horn rimmed glasses and his fedora. Yes. Like, tap tapping away. It's like Mad Men. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, t- s- sitting in their executive chairs trying to tame the emotions. Something much more complex is going on in our brains and our minds than that. So this simplistic the rational versus the emotional and having mindfulness on the side of the rational is just a perpetuation of the same old false dichotomy. It does a disservice to people who could benefit from mindfulness. You know, if somebody's outraged um, and, you know, really upset, um, if they think that Mindfulness is this thing where you're supposed to waft around in a, in a controlled calm. They may think, well, this is not for me. I couldn't handle this. This is impossible. I can't do this. I tried and I'm never going yeah, to I can't. Yeah, I can't do it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really unfair. We need, to, um, we need to break out of this stigma about emotion and, and understand it better. Yeah, and I guess break out of that dichotomy that says there's rational and there's emotional and they're separate. Why would we want our emotions at the table when we're making a decision, say? Well, I think that that uh, my friend and colleague, um, Dacker Keltner, who's a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, and uh, he directs the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab, and he's also the founder and faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center there. And Mindful has a very close relationship with Dacker and the Greater Good Science Center. And I want to to read um, from first from an interview that that we did with him that I think expresses. Uh, a subtler understanding of emotion and its relationship to to how we make decisions. So my, I was asking him, what exactly is an emotion? And Dacker said, in my field, we think of an emotion as a brief, transient process that helps us achieve a social goal, like fairness, taking care of people in need, or avoiding danger. Those brief processes have an expressive element, a signal in the face or the voice or the body. They also have other physiological components, chills, goosebumps, heart racing. Emotions aren't irrational. They embody judgments about the world that help us live our social lives. When you feel compassion, one of the emotions I've most been most devoted to studying, your mind is captured by the idea that there is harm and you need to attend to it. Yes, emotions are challenging and they need to be navigated with care, but our rich diet of emotions allows us to engage with others to, to enjoy our world. It's when we wall ourselves off from emotional connection in a cocoon of pure self-interest that we're in danger of weakening the pro-social tendencies that hold the human world together. Mm. And I just think that's just a brilliant uh, expression and understanding of emotion that, that emotion is not irrational. It's an on-the-spot response 
Um, and yes, it is challenging, but we needn't throw out the baby with the bathwater because emotion, when it runs rampant, as it is wont to do, it can cloud our, uh, our good judgment, too. Right. And nobody's denying that. And it can be, emotion can be very dangerous. Yeah. Somebody whose who's emotions, are, or when our emotions are completely imbalanced, then, you know, we could strike out at somebody, and then if that, if that habit is fed further, that, um, you know, it can lead to real grievous harm and even death. And so that possibility... And that fear, I think, perhaps has caused us all to run in the direction of rationality. Mm-hmm. Whereas mindfulness and awareness is saying we need to go in the direction of emotion and learn how to work with its power. Um, it's like if you get a dog... Um, It's going to be wild, but with training, which is essentially learning how to communicate, um, the power of the dog can be quite um, contained. Right. And, you know, we can tame our mind. Now, you refer to emotions in your column as uh, elusive, shape-shifting inner beasts. So that gives me the sense that we want to work with them. We, we want to ride them rather than letting them ride us, right? Absolutely. And, you know, that, that is the challenge we set for ourselves. And, you know, it becomes a, a study um, in action, you know, that we get to see how the emotions actually work in in, in, in in meditation practice, you know, one of the things we do is, so can we set, let's say, a set amount of time that we're going to meditate for. And that's, by the way, the usually the best approach to take. It's not to say, okay, I'm going to meditate until I'm tired of doing it, <laughs> or I'm going to meditate until I achieve a particular thing. Now, I'm going to meditate for this amount of, of time, this stretch. And during that stretch, an emotional thought can and likely will emerge in your mind. But nobody's going to get hurt. Uh-huh. They might hurt yourself a little bit if that emotional thought involves some beating up on yourself. But if you stay with it with kindness, you can ride through that. So we're essentially creating a, a uh, personal safe space. And if we meditate together with others, we're creating a group safe space. Right. The ultimate safe space. And in that space, we can observe our emotions, but observe, since it sounds like, since it feels like seeing. Yeah. It's, that's not quite it. It's, it's um, to be intimate with 
and to appreciate and, and, and um, notice in our whole body. As Dacker was saying, emotions have all of these physical manifestations. So when you're coming to know what anger is, you're coming to know this whole landscape, the uh, different ways it can manifest. So it's a great laboratory. And one that you can spend time in before you're kind of in the wild having a exactly. an experience of anger. And, and then and when, you, when the you go out in the wild, I mean, let's say your spouse pisses you off. Yeah. And suddenly you're having an outburst. It's possible that the meditation could help you have a little bit more of what we call meta awareness uh-huh. or metacognition, where while the th- the event is happening, you also have a little bit of insight into that it is happening, mm-hmm. and you might curtail it a little bit. The cycle, life cycle of that emotion, might be shortened a bit. You might end up with a place where the emotion, the power of the emotion is there, but the harming aspect of it is, can be greatly reduced. It's like you think of a child is reaching for a stove. Mm-hmm. And I did this when I was a kid. I touched a, I think, has every child done that? <laughs> you know, I touched a burner, you know, and a... a Wow, not good. Instant um, feedback. Yeah. But, you know, your parent is there and says no. <laughs> and, the you know, there's a great power there. Right. And it's direct. But then you might also get carried away a little bit because of, as Decker was calling it, your, your self-interest. Mm-hmm. You say, you little shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you... you you add that part of it that harms. Right. And is that, you know, one could contemplate, is that necessary? Right. Like, what purpose is that serving? Exactly. You're just off-gassing at that Exactly. Point, You're just off-gassing. What uh-huh. does it really... It's it's like um, the difference between calling out and calling and in. calling in, right. Right. That, yeah. you know, we're going to call somebody out on that. and Make people, an example of them and make, shame them. Exactly. And let's say you do have that fight with your spouse and you start to feel that bad about it you said some things you're going to regret so that's also part of the process you know you can bring that back to the laboratory and with kindness you can have a non-judgmental appreciation for what occurred i guess this is why we call it practice very much so yeah all right, so I would like to practice this. Um, and I think you're just the guy to show me how to do that. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, we often talk about it as working with difficult emotions. Um, you know, anger being the one that, that probably gets us in the most trouble. Although, frankly, passion gets us in as much trouble uh, of a different kind, uh, probably. But the practice that I'm going to uh, lead us in has to do with that uh, meta-awareness or metacognition that I was talking about. So almost in the way that an actor would, we're going to uh, generate an emotion and just be with it for a little bit and then 
come back to uh, basic meditation. So let's begin by settling into your seat, whatever kind of seat you have. If you're on a meditation cushion on the floor, then notice how your bottom is connecting with that cushion and how you're resting your legs and your feet on the floor. If you're in a chair, same thing. Notice your bottom touching the chair and your feet on the floor. Your eyes may be opened or closed and you have an upright but not stiff posture. Let your chin drop slightly in a gesture of humbleness. And now begin by paying attention to your breath. Notice your breath as it comes in and goes out. As you have thoughts, you can simply say thinking in your mind and come back to the breath. So you're identifying the thought as thinking and coming back to your breath. Let's just do that for a little while. I'm not going to say anything. Right now, within this space of mindfulness, we're going to generate an emotion. And let's work with anger. Think of something that outrages you. Some kind of harm that people do, like making a overtly racist comment or being uh, harsh and pushy and maybe you see somebody shoving someone just think of a specific instance that makes you upset angry right now focus that anger I'm thinking right now of a specific person making a very nasty kind of statement. Feel the anger rising, what that feels like. Just experience how it feels in the body. Feel how it changes your physiology. Get into it. Go with it. Be mad. You are mad. You're mad about this. This is something that's unfair, unpleasant, no good. You don't want it to happen. You feel the intensity rising. 
Maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe you don't like feeling this way. Or maybe you do. Feel the intensity of it. Now, let's let go of it. Let go of that external stimulus, the thing you were thinking of that made you angry. If necessary, think of something pleasing, like a blossoming flower with dew on it or something like that, or someone being very kind. And now, feel what it's like to let the emotion subside. Now, it doesn't happen instantly. It has a life cycle. It can take a little while to come back. Now, just... Spend a little bit of time paying attention to the breath. And you feel a slight afterglow or afterburn of the emotion there, still in your body. Maybe your shoulders stiffened. Drop them down. Rest more. Paying attention to the breath, breath, breath. All right, that's it. We've concluded. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was something. It is interesting to feel the power of the emotion as something that you can uh, experience with the light of uh, awareness and insight. Yeah. What really struck me was your invitation to notice you don't like it, you don't want it, or maybe you do. <laughs> and that's a really interesting place to hang out with challenging emotions as well. You know, what, what do we create? What do we you know, cling to. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to the fighting or not fighting and the, you know, there's a quality to the emotion, if you can take my word for it, that just is. It's not about whether you like it or not, it just is. And when we have less fear and more intimacy and familiarity we can let the if you say the the pure emotion be there a little bit more and maybe you know in terms of anger the harming element uh, can be greatly reduced mm. because anger does seem to be some kind of a piercing response to wrong mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in the heart of it, it's something like that, feels like to me. Well, the word righteous is sometimes paired with it. Sometimes anger is righteous anger. Yeah. It, it can be a thing that propels you to, you know, to get things done, to make potentially positive social change, for instance. 
as well as to kick over a chair. Yeah. Well, and you know, and you need to look at when you, you know, political groups often are fueled by righteous emotion, but, you know, there are many um, stories of people burning out on that. Yeah. Because either themselves or the organization or both began to rely on it as a drug. Yeah. And, you know, I think as we look at examples and exemplars, you, know, you think of somebody like uh, Nelson Mandela or, or Mother Teresa or, you know, any number of people who clearly accomplished things with great emotion and certainly indignation. I don't think that Mother Teresa approached poverty with a simple acceptance of it. Right. Nor did Nelson Mandela approach apartheid with acceptance. There was great indignation there. But because the work was long, he couldn't simply use, you know, they couldn't use the uh, power of the motion as a drug to get high on. Mm-hmm. Well, even the, the kind of the invitation to observe the, the how it embodies, you know, the, the physicality of that emotion, really paying attention to the feelings in my body during that practice, uh, that is not a place I can hang out for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah, and that, that exactly. It's um, another way of looking at it is um, this guy um, we know um, who's written for Mindful, Jeremy Hunter, uh, who's a management expert at uh, Claremont Graduate University in California, in Southern California. He talks about looking at your nervous system as a kind of a complete, um, so you have all these resources at your disposal. And if you get uh, angry, you spend a certain amount of that resource. Right. Was it worthwhile? Uh-huh. Uh, was it uh, a worthwhile use of your resource? Because it takes a while to recover. Right. Yeah. So um, he's looking at it from a um, non-judgmental, neutral perspective about the nervous system. We know that people who over-respond burn out. Right. They they trash their nervous systems. This is a very sad situation for first responders. For right. example, they get called to action and they expend an incredible amount of energy and then it turns out it was just a cat in a tree and it was no big deal. But they have to spend all that time coming back down again. Right. So emotions are like that. They, they're they part of a bank um, that we have. So, you know, that's part of what we can pay attention to is this resource allocation system that is our nervous system. Right. You often remind me on this podcast and elsewhere that you are not a perfect paragon of mindfulness, is how you once put it. So tell me about a time your emotions got the best of you. Well, you know, as I was 
thinking about this question that since you prepped me for it, I came to not thinking about one particular incident, but rather different landscapes of of a particular emotion, um, in this case anger, which is a lot of what we've been focusing on. You know, one part of the landscape was with my children. You know, I, when I was helping my children with schoolwork, I often lost my temper. And, you know, rather than having that energy be channeled into intense focus, uh, it was channeled into irritation, and, uh -huh. and I lost my temper with them in a way that I, that I am not happy about. And I, it, you know, I've I, I tried to learn a lot from that. You know, I learned that uh, children will perceive a statement as a judgment when it comes from a parent. And if that's if you add to that, if you put some uh, juice into that with temper, then you know that that that's really a hard thing to put on somebody who's trying to learn how to make their way in the world. Mm -hmm. So that that's one landscape where, you know, I have a you know definite had a definite experience of of uh, both the power and danger of emotion. Another one is in 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 in, mar in marriage. You know, mm -hmm. in the relationship with a spouse. Uh, it's the rare couple who doesn't have fights. It's just it's just part of being in a relationship, and they're very puzzling. <laughs> yes. They're very very puzzling. You know, uh, the um, they they seem necessary. They have to. There's whether it's an escape valve or a. You know, you're just negotiating so many things in a small space with somebody. Yes. It's inevitable that 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 the friction has to emerge. So somebody once said to me, well, you know, it's important that you're both playing by the same rules uh -huh. somehow. Right. My wife and I fight very rarely these days. We're married, you know, for an extremely long time, I think. Perhaps we've worn that out, <laughs> but it. You've seen the movie before. You know how it ends. Yeah, and um, but it definitely happens, and um, I would say it's an area that I that I find fascinating, because uh -huh. I wouldn't counsel a couple to not to try not to fight, because that just seems unrealistic. But how can the fight be healthy? Right. And. Um, you know that's one area that I just I just find incredibly interesting. Um, then another area I find interesting is uh, anger at a distance. Oh, what do you mean? So, you know we have media. Yes. And we forget what media really means. Media is bringing us mediated information at a distance. Uh huh. I'm not standing next to the President of the United States. He's not sitting across from me. I hear his voice on media. Yes. And I'm screaming suddenly because he's said something that upset me. Right. Um, 
I remember this used to happen with Jimmy Carter. I felt like he said a lot of really stupid things, and I was a lot younger then, and I got really mad. And, you know, I, or reading the newspaper, the radio, whatever it is, or you hear of, of a crime. Yes. And you want to strangle that person. You know, wow, that's terrible. And, um, but you know that we have a justice system that, imperfect as it is, it's an attempt to not just respond to crime with vengeance, but yet you feel vengeful in the moment. So um, that's a very interesting area. How much do you exercise mental hygiene uh-huh. and put yourself on a media diet so that you're not exposed to these things at a distance? At the same time, you don't want to be a know-nothing. Right. So that's a very interesting landscape to cover because if you think about it, in personal interaction, you know, when you get people in rooms together up close, in the end, they tend to behave better. Yeah, by and large. By and large. Not always, depends for sure. Group, depends on the room. But yeah, depends on by the room, depends on the group. But by and large, when people have to spend time actually looking with each, at each other, sharing the space, particularly if you got the right configuration of people, then... Um, it's not as easy uh, for us to be assholes together. That's right. We have to, you know, perhaps reluctantly acknowledge each other's humanity. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think this is a big part of what Dacker is talking about, about the pro-social tendencies that hold the human world together. Right, because I can yell at the radio... And I do. Yeah. All by myself. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't yell those things right into the face of right. a person. And I if, can't see. if you did, because you're in the contained space, something more interesting and creative might come out of that. Right. There's feedback. There's no feedback when I just and yell in at fact, the radio. You know, that circles back to the spousal argument. Right. You know, if you know, something creative can come out of the interaction uh, because, you know, some stuff's been bubbling beneath the surface and now it's out. Here we go. Here we go. We're going to talk about this We're going to run, yeah, we're going to go through this. You know, in the last area, last landscape of emotion that I was contemplating is free-floating emotion. Oh, that stuff. It just sort of, suddenly you're pissed off (laughs) and it's like, Wow. What? And, you know, you think, well, there must have been some pathway to get here. I'm not always sure, you know, what that is. Huh, just that flicker. It's like an electrical signal or something. Yeah, and it could be passion, too, you know. Like, suddenly you're passionate sexually or something, you know. or, um, Or it could even be, you know, more neutral. Like, suddenly you're just really indifferent and bored or, well, who cares? Um, you know, the, I think the, the way that I've worked with that free-floating situation is to have a lighter touch on it, Hmm. you know, just to let the things come and go, 
Because they will. They'll have a lifespan. Right. So you just are like, oh, this is here now. Exactly. I've, I, I haven't had much luck in... If there's some underlying impetus that I need to be looking at or we need to be looking at, I have a feeling with patients it will reveal itself. Uh-huh. If I get too... You know, it just becomes too much of a self-referential, you know, uh, exploration in the echo chamber when you, t- you know, why am I angry right now? And, you know, then you, you, you're down a rabbit hole. Right. Anyway, that's been my experience. Last time we were together, uh, we talked about the mindful vulgarian. You're sort of, I don't know, is that an alter ego or... I don't know what that guy I don't is. know how alter it is. <laughs> it might just be... It, it's part of... Straight up ego. Part of... Uh, part of my... Part of who I am, I suppose. What, um, what does he make of all this? Well, I think the, the Bulgarian is mostly ticked off about um, the false notion of of mindfulness is creating this kind of a thing that I was talking about in the beginning where being mindful means being one kind of thing. Uh-huh. So you're always talking in a soft voice and you're carrying yourself with an incredible sense of gentleness <laughs> and it's very fakey and it lacks passion and humanity and it sends off the wrong message it's just um, trying to control ourselves and if mindfulness and awareness are as valuable as we think they are then it seems to me that it ought to be able to allow humans to be fully themselves with the full range of responses available and I want to quote Dacker again mm. here. Um, this is from a, from a little interview with him on the Daily Californian, which is the UC Berkeley's um, paper. Relying on your passions makes you wiser. It makes you better at leading. It improves the bottom line at work. It's better for your physical health. The people around around you will like you better if you have these passions that are guided by reason and guide reason. I come out of a school of thought that the passions are why we're here, and they are our most human qualities. I love what he says, guided by reason and guide reason. Yeah. So we can't separate those two. No, insight insight and insight and emotion work together. Intellect and passion, heart and head, however you want to describe these things, they're just this wonderful interplay. And you know, that's the arena we're in. So if you think of if something is too emotional, quote-unquote. In a way, what we're saying is that there's not enough light in there. There's not enough insight. And if something is too intellectual, it's dry, there's not enough emotion. Right. So the Goldilocks moment is those coming together. And um, 
you know, if you think of great art, often it brings those two together in a beautiful way, like a great, um, you know, speech in a play or, you know, a performance of, of a song or so. Um, yes, the mindful vulgarian says, God damn it. <laughs> Let your emotions run wild and deal. <laughs> well, thanks to him and thanks to you, Barry. Yeah, this has been fun. And um, till next time. Till next time. Be well. This has been Point of View with Editor-in-Chief Barry Boyce. This podcast is a production of Mindful.org. If you want to talk to us about what you heard on the podcast, if you have a question for Barry, you can drop us a line at mindful at mindful.org. You can find more of Barry Boyce at mindful.org. Just search his name in the search bar. You'll find audio practices, tons of stories, and all the other episodes of Point of View. I'm Stephanie Domet. Till next time, work with your emotions so they don't work you over.